continue in our series this summer, This We Believe. And as I was looking at the topic that we have today, as I was preparing for it, I realized that I'm not going to be able to finish what I had planned. So even this one, we're going to cover over two weeks, which means that we are not going to be able to finish this series before we go for the retreat. So um, what we will do is we will have that one last lesson, Lord willing, a couple of Wednesdays after we come back. But tonight we come to the topic of angels. In his book, Angels, by Dr. Billy Graham, he shares a story of a physician by the name S.W. Mitchell, who was a celebrated neurologist from Philadelphia. On one particular evening, Dr. Mitchell had gone to bed after an exceptionally long and tiring day when suddenly he was awakened by someone knocking on his door. He went to the door, opened it, and he found a little girl, poorly dressed and very deeply upset. Uh, she told him that her mother was very sick and asked if he could please come with her. Now, it was a very cold night, a very bitterly cold and a snowy night. But though he was dead tired, he was bone tired, Dr. Mitchell dressed up and followed the girl home. Once he was there, he found the mother who was desperately ill with pneumonia. After arranging some medical care for her, looking at her, diagnosing what it was, and giving her the medicine she needed, he complimented the sick woman on the intelligence and the persistence of her little daughter. As who, at whose mention the woman looked at him strangely as if to say, what are you talking about? After he gathered himself up quickly, she said, Dr. Mitchell, my daughter died almost a month ago. And then she added, her shoes and coat are in the clothes closet right there. Dr. Mitchell was amazed and he was perplexed. But just to make himself sure, he went to the closet that was there. He opened the door and there hung the very coat worn by the little girl who had brought him to tend to her mother. It was, the coat was warm and dry and could not possibly have been worn in the wintry night. As he concludes the story, Dr. Graham asks, could the doctor have been called in an hour of desperate need by an angel who appeared as this little girl, this woman's young daughter? Was this the work of God's angels on behalf of this desperately sick woman? Fascinating, isn't it? I have, and I suspect you have heard such stories and instances from friends and relatives, perhaps from family members. Now, I've not personally seen an angel, or at least they've not introduced themselves to me in that way. But as we have been learning from the beginning of this series, we take, at Countryside, we take the Bible as our authority and because we take the Bible as our authority, we believe what the Bible teaches, and the Bible has a great deal to say about angels. But why study about angels? Why should we be aware of who they are and what they do? Now, generally speaking, we tend to take one or the other of these extreme views about angels, 
we tend to think that they're not very relevant and shouldn't bother really to think about them at all. That, that is one extreme view. But there is another extreme, those who think, think that these beings are involved in every little experience of their life. Uh, there are some who blame a bad hair day on one of the fallen angels. And so we want to study the angels to get the right and can I say a balanced and a biblical understanding of what the Bible teaches about angels. We also want to study about angels because the way they are presented in the scriptures, including our Lord, he identified them as real beings. Remember in the Olivet Discourse, the word um, uh, he, he said, our Lord said, and when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And so Lord treats these beings as real beings, as actual beings. But we also want to study about angels because the Bible teaches about angels. In the Old Testament, the word angels appears more than 200 times. And in the New Testament, the word angels appears more than 170 times. It would have been worth studying it, even if it, were, it would have appeared just once. But there's 370 times that the Bible mentions angels. The Hebrew and Greek terms for angels appear in the Bible from Genesis chapter 16 to Malachi chapter 3. From the first book in the Old Testament to the last book in the Old Testament. And then we see angels in Matthew's gospel and we see them again in Revelation 22. From the first book in the New Testament till the last book in the New Testament. Now with those as the reasons, let me share with you the framework that we're going to follow for tonight and Lord willing for the next, next Wednesday night as well. Overall, the, the lesson is divided into two sections. We will learn about the holy angels tonight and then when we meet next time, we will focus on the unholy angels, satans and demons that is. Now within these two sections, we're going to consider their origin, uh, their characteristics, their organization and their objectives. Their origin, their characteristics, their organization, and their objectives. So let's begin by considering their origin. The angels are created beings. They are created by God. In fact, the memory verse that you have in your booklets is from Psalm 148, verse 2 and 5, where the psalmist writes, Praise him, all his angels, Praise him, all his hosts. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. For he commanded and they were created. When, at least we get to know from this verse that the angels are created being. But the question is, when were they created? Now, we are going through the book of Genesis. When we were in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31... Genesis 1.31 tells us that God created all things by the end of the sixth day. When we go to chapter 2 in verse 1, it tells us that the creation, all of creation was complete by that time. Meaning that angels were created somewhere between the first and the sixth day. If you were to read Job chapter 38 verse 7, it tells us that angels sang when God was creating they sang during the creation, which is to say that they probably were created much earlier in the creation week than others were created. Very likely, some say, 
on day one. Angels then did not exist from eternity past. They came into being when God created them. So they are created beings. What can we say about their characteristics? Who are they? Uh, what can we mention as characteristics that they possess? There's a few that we can mention. First of all, the fact that God created them to be holy. Uh, the holy angels were created morally pure and they remain so. I mentioned Genesis 1.31. In that verse, it says, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. God says everything that he has created is very good. God calls all of his creation very good. Now if he, he wouldn't call it very good if he would have created or if there were unholy angels at this time. So the fact that he calls his creation very good, we can assume also the fact that he created them holy. In 1 Timothy 5.21, it says, the holy angels are also those that are called chosen. Paul writes, I solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. The first thing that we can conclude about these angels is that they were created holy. But secondly, they were created as persons. Angels are created as persons. They have distinct identifiable qualities that persons have. What are those qualities? Well, first of all, they have an intellect. Uh, that is, they, they are able to think. They are wise beings who are able to carry out a conversation. They can sing and they can worship. We just sang uh, about the fact that angels are praising God in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5. And then in Isaiah chapter 6, it talks about the fact that angels are constantly praising and worshiping God. In fact, throughout the record of scriptures, there's at least 26 encounters with angels that are mentioned in the Bible, 10 in the Old Testament and 16 in the New Testament. Angels then are persons because they have intellect. But they also have emotions. They also have the capacity for emotions, for feelings. Remember the, the parable of the lost coin? They rejoice when a sinner repents, it says. Uh, they, they fear God and revere Him and express wonder and respect for Him. Uh, they are beings who have emotions. Not only that, they are also beings who have a will. A will allows you to make a choice. They choose to worship God. Not only do they choose to worship God, they're also very, very interested and curious in understanding the salvation that God accomplished for you and for me. First Peter 1 verse 12. They, they, they look with curiosity on what God is doing. I've always wondered about that particular verse in 1 Peter 10, 12, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Uh, I've wondered about it because when angels fell, there was no redemption, there was no salvation for them. Their destiny was already decided. Salvation, God accomplished only for you and for me, his image bearers. They are persons, secondly. Thirdly, they are spiritual beings. They are spiritual beings. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14, perhaps a verse that is familiar to us, 
it says, are they, that is angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? God created them to serve us. They're ministering spirits. They're spiritual beings. Well, that means that they're not physical beings. In fact, when our Lord was raised from the dead and he visited his disciples in Luke chapter 24, verse 39, he would say to his disciples, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, he says, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. They're spiritual beings, but they can tend to take physical form as we see them regularly in the scriptures. Remember when we studied Genesis 18, verse 1 and 2, when these angels came and visited Abraham? Let me quickly read from there. Now the Lord appeared to him, that is Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he, that is Abraham, lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And so although they are spiritual beings, they're not physical beings, they can and they have the ability to take on a physical form. We see that in the book of Judges as well. Fourthly, they are powerful beings. They are powerful but finite. And they are mighty in strength and powerful. They are not bound by physical space and they are able to travel between earth and heaven very swiftly. Remember that incident with uh, Jacob who was resting and he saw angels ascending and descending. In Psalm 103 verse 20 it says, Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Mighty in strength. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, they are described as great in might and power. They are powerful. But they are also limited. They are limited in the sense that they perform or do what God commands them to perform and do. They are under his authority. Remember that verse in Jude 9? Uh, this, our, our, our Lord's half-brother Jude, he writes this letter and he mentions Michael, one of the angels, and he says, Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Uh, it is to say that these beings are powerful, but they're also finite. They are under the authority of our great God. They obey him. They do and perform what God commands them to do and perform. Uh, fifthly, they are also immortal. Uh, that is, they are ageless. Uh, they cannot die, these holy angels, because they have not sinned. Uh, Luke twenty thirty six tells us uh, this particular fact about them, that they are immortal. And sixthly and finally, they are genderless. Uh, that is, they're also beings without gender and cannot reproduce of, uh, after their own kind. Now, I must mention this, the scriptures depict them as if they were male. Uh, but they're neither male nor female in a larger sense, similar to 
our great God. Um, as you think of Michael and Gabriel, the two angels that are mentioned in the scriptures, they're mentioned in masculine terms. So the scriptures do depict them as if they were male, but because they cannot reproduce after their own kind, I've mentioned them as without gender or genderless. These are then the characteristics of angels. They're created holy, they're persons, they can think, uh, they have a will, they have emotions, they're spiritual beings, they're powerful but finite, they're immortal, and then they're genderless. How are they organized? How are they organized? Are they ranked in some way? What are the different kinds of angels that the Bible talks about? That brings me to the third thing that I do want to mention. It is their organization. The Bible talks about different kinds of angels. The first one that it talks about is the archangels. It means a chief angel. Arche in Greek means the beginning or the first one or the chief one. Archangel means the chief angels. And there are two angels that are referred to by name in the scriptures, uh, and those angels are Michael and Gabriel. The third one, or at least we commonly think of it as so, is Lucifer. The name comes from the word for the term morning star, and is only translated as such in King James Version and the New King James Version, but in no other versions that way. And so Michael and Gabriel, and Lucifer if we assume the third one, Michael, is, as an angel, is also referred to in the book of Daniel. He's referred there as a chief princess or chief prince, which is understood as an archangel. He's expressly or explicitly defined as an archangel in Jude 9, the verse that we just read together. Now, Gabriel, on the other hand, is not referred to explicitly in the Bible as an archangel. It seems that the title is really bestowed on him uh, by tradition because of the role that he played in the Old Testament and the New Testament as a chief communicator. But the Bible doesn't explicitly use that title for him. These then are the archangels. Then we have the, secondly, the cherubims. The cherubims. The cherubims are those who diligently serve. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 28, the prophet Ezekiel describes Satan as the guardian cherub. Our cherub is the singular, and cherubim is the plural. Uh, these are words that appear a number of times in the Bible. Uh, remember, they are the ones who also guarded the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve were thrown out of the Garden of Eden. Why don't we quickly turn there, Genesis chapter 3. Let me read from verse, let me read verse 24. So he, that is the Lord, drove the man out, that is Adam and Eve, and at the, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. To guard the way to the tree of life. So they appear as ones who are guarding Something that belongs to God. Not only that, if you, were come, if you were to come to Exodus chapter 25, they also appear as models on the mercy seat guarding the Ark of the Covenant. And so their role seems to be guarding access to God. 
As I was studying this passage, you remember when our Lord died on, on the cross, that the veil was torn into two in the temple. Uh, one writer wrote, at that moment, the cherubims laid their swords down because through the blood of Christ, it was made possible to have access to the Lord. A wonderful picture. The role of cherubims is then to guard the very presence of God. They're involved in guarding. Thirdly and finally, we have the seraphims. Uh, the seraph, which is singular, and the seraphims is plural, is, is a category of angels that's only mentioned in the book of Isaiah. Uh, the word seraph means the burning ones. And these angels, angels that fall into this category, they're concerned with God's holiness. Something that should signify each and every one of us who is a follower of Christ. We should be concerned about God's holiness. Why don't we turn to Isaiah chapter 1 as we get a sense of what is happening. Isaiah chapter 6, rather, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. A seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. As you imagine Isaiah seeing the scene in front of him, what do you think is going through his mind? What does it make him do as he looks at his own sin? Notice verse 5. Then I said, woe is me for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Sin cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. That's what we learn from there. And Seraphim's role is to proclaim God's holiness, is to worship Him. So then we have the archangels, we have the cherubims, and then there are the seraphims. And there, it is possible that there are a host of angels in general. But we don't know much about them because the Bible doesn't talk much about them in those categories. But these are the ones that the Bible does mention. Their characteristics, their organization... But we might, we might ask, why were the angels created at all? What is their job profile? And so to understand that, we have to understand it in terms of five different entities. That's where we will go as we look at concluding a little early tonight. Objectives. Uh, first of all, to God. What is their job profile in regards to God? Well, something we've already considered, it is to praise and worship this great God. That's what they were created to do and to, to be. 
in Job 38, verse 7, a verse that I referenced earlier, it says, when the morning stars sang together and all the angels of God shouted for joy. Psalm 148.2, praise him, all his angels, praise him, all his hosts. In these passages, we see angels active in worshiping and praising God. We already read about and got a glimpse into heaven as we read Isaiah chapter 6, very similar to Revelation chapter 4. These angels, they serve God and they congregate as sons of God. They're called sons of God or they're angels before God, as they worship him, they give honor and praise and glory to God. What a wonderful example for you and for me. That is what your life and my life is to be marked by. We are to be praising and worshiping God. Not only do they praise and worship God, they're also God's instruments to carry out something. Well, first of all, to deliver messages on behalf of God. They're servants of God. They serve God. They serve the purposes of God. And they do that by, first of all, delivering messages on his behalf. The angels used to transmit his law to Moses. That's what God used them for, Acts chapter 7. Uh, we are also told that Gabriel took God's word to Daniel. Uh, Gabriel took God's word to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. Gabriel took God's message to Mary in Luke chapter 1 as well. They also frequently communicated with the Apostle John during the course of the writing of the book of Revelation. They are God's messengers. Not only do they deliver messages on behalf of God, but they also deliver judgment on behalf of God. Angels served as God's instrument for judgment. Remember when we read in Genesis um, 18 and 19, God used them to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Not only did he use them in the past, we are told that they will also be involved in bringing final judgment. Uh, the trumpet judgments involve angels. The bowl judgments involve angels mentioned in Revelation 8 and Revelation 16. They're not only messengers on God's behalf, but they also carry judgment or deliver judgment on God's behalf. That is what they do for God. But also they minister to Christ. How did they minister to Christ? Well, first of all, in his infancy, in his birth and infancy, remember angels participated in announcing Christ's birth to Mary, something that I already mentioned. They also coordinated or communicated with Joseph, his father, his earthly father, and they were also the ones who were the first to proclaim the news of a Messiah being born to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. Not only did they pronounce his birth, but angels are also credited with protecting Christ during his infancy. Why don't we turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Remember the story of the Magis who come to worship Christ, the king of Israel. or the king of the Jews, as Matthew mentions him. And so they come, they find out where he is. Herod wants to know where he is from them because he says, I would like to worship him as well. And after they worship him and they present their gifts, they go another way and notice what happens. 
Let me pick up in verse 12, Matthew chapter 2, verse 12. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. What happens to Joseph and Mary? Notice verse 13. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And so we see angels also protecting Christ during his infancy. Not, not only that, when Herod dies, again an angel once uh, appears to Joseph in a dream in Egypt and instructs him, and then the family returns to Israel. And so in his birth and infancy, we find the angels ministering to Christ. But not only that, they are also an active part of his ministry on earth. Angels ministered to Christ from the beginning of his public ministry. Remember that incident when our Lord is tempted by Satan in Matthew chapter 4? When, when he is tempted and the temptations are over, at the end it says in verse 11 of chapter 4, then the devil left him and behold angels came and began to minister to him. And so we find angels ministering to our Lord right at the beginning of his ministry, but we also find angels ministering to our Lord at the end of his ministry. Remember that incident in the Garden of Gethsemane? It says in Luke chapter 22, verse 43, Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Not only do we find angels ministering to Christ at the beginning and at the end, but they are generally ministering to Christ during his earthly ministry. John chapter 1 verse 51 is another reference that you can think of. Paul in writing to Timothy says this, by common confession great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The angels are deeply involved in what is happening in our Lord's life here on the earth. Not only that, they help people understand what Christ's resurrection meant. If you're still in Matthew, go down to Matthew chapter 28. Notice this is the event after he was, he had risen from the dead. In verse 1 it says, Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and, other, and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. An angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Go down to verse Five, then the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here for he has risen just as he said, come see the place where he was lying. So after our Lord's resurrection, we find angels ministering to the people that were close to him, helping them to understand Christ's resurrection. Remember also after he was, after he had risen from the dead and after he ascended, uh, an event that took place 40 days after the resurrection. Uh, there in Galilee, the angels meet with his disciples 
And they say to the men of Galilee, why are you standing here and looking up at the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come just as the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And so our Lord's life, his ministry, while here on earth and after his resurrection and ascension is filled with angels acting and doing things on his behalf. Not only do we find their involvement in his ministry here on earth, we also find that they are involved in his ministry in the future. When Christ returns to the earth at the rapture of the church, the angels will also be active as they return with him. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, Paul writes, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. They will accompany, in other words, Christ at his second advent. They will gather in believers. They will bring judgment on unbelievers. An angel will bind and imprison Satan for the duration of Christ's thousand-year reign that Revelation 20 talks about. These are active, active beings. To God, to Christ, thirdly, to church. Quickly here, uh, they are involved in the life of the church and as regards to apostolic leadership, uh, that is, that they are involved in who the apostles were. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4.9, for I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. They're involved in apostolic leadership, but they're also involved in maintaining purity of church leadership. In 1 Timothy 5.21, a verse that I read for you earlier, it says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels, to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing out of a spirit of partiality. And so we see an angel, angels being involved in what is happening in the church as well. Not only that, they also do something as related to the unbelievers. In regards to the unbelievers, they're involved in bringing God's judgment. They announce God's judgment. Remember the story in Genesis of Lot and his family? Uh, it was they who warned Lot and his family as they pronounced judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Not only did they announce, but they also assist in God bringing his judgment on this earth. Uh, the parable of the tares. Who is it that will separate the unrighteous from the righteous? Our Lord says it is the angels who will do that. They will separate the weeds from the wheat. Not only do they assist uh, and announce and assist, but they also accomplish God's judgment. They carry out God's judgment. Turn to Acts, if you're still in Matthew. Turn to Acts chapter 12. An incident is mentioned almost in passing here about Herod Agrippa I, who was the grandson of Herod the Great that existed during Jesus' time just before his, uh, at the time of his birth, that is. This Herod that is mentioned in chapter 12 is actually the grandson of Herod the Great. Now, something happens here that is significant. As he begins to speak in front of an audience, in verse 22, it tells us the people kept crying out the voice of a God and not of a man. 
And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, this is Herod, because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. Who brings God's judgment on Herod? It is the angels. And the reason given is that he did not give God the glory and therefore he was eaten by worms and he died. In Revelation 16, during tribulation, it says, Then I heard a voice, a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Angels then, when it comes to unbelievers, are involved in their judgment. God uses them to bring judgment on unbelievers. Not only that, God also uses them to evangelize to the unbelievers. Angels are involved in paving the way of the gospel. If you're still in Acts, go back a couple of chapters. I'm just walking you through chapters uh, so that we can see for ourselves what is happening there. This is chapter 8. Remember, this is the incidents that we looked at even last week. This is the deacon Philip and his involvement in sharing the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. Notice verse 26. Philip is in Samaria. Uh, Notice verse 26. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. And what is going on there? There's an Ethiopian eunuch who has come to worship in Jerusalem. He's on his way back to Ethiopia. I need you to meet with him and share the gospel with him. That's Acts chapter 8. Go down a couple of chapters to Acts chapter 10. This is the first Gentile believer, Cornelius. Notice verse, let me read from verse 1. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household. He gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Notice what happens in verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who was also called Peter, He's staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. Verse 7 tells us, when the angel who was speaking to him had left, then he goes on to summon his two servants, sends them to Joppa. You see the angel's involvement in drawing unbelievers to a belief, to a faith in Christ. I wonder, once we are in heaven, how many angels we will meet and interact with who are involved in your salvation and in my salvation. They're involved in evangelism. Not only are they involved in evangelism while we're here on earth, but the Bible tells us that they're also involved in evangelism during the tribulation period, uh, which is generally known as Daniel's 70th week. In Revelation chapter 4, 14 rather, verse 6 and 7, it says, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach, to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Angels are involved in evangelism here, right now, in this church age. 
but they're also involved in evangelism in the tribulation period, where if you're a believer, you're not going to be involved in that period. We'll all be taken up at the rapture. Angels then, in their objectives to God, to Christ, to the church, to unbelievers, and fifthly and finally to believers. What is their role in our life? Well, first of all, they're ministering spirits. They're ministers to believers. They serve. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, a verse that we looked at earlier. Are they not ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? They minister to us. It's only in heaven, I think, it will be fully revealed how they did that while you and I were here on earth. Perhaps that accident that you just missed that you were going to be a part of. Uh, perhaps that tragedy that would have come in your life had an angel not been there. And we're told of a story in Acts chapter 12 where the entire church is praying for Peter. And God, in response to that prayer, sends an angel and releases Peter from the prison. He rescues Peter from a prison as a result of the prayers of the saints that are offered on his, on his behalf. They minister to believers. Secondly, they assist believers, in, uh, they assist believers in evangelism. And we've already seen this in the case of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and also in case of Cornelius. Uh, they are involved in helping us to share the, the gospel. What more can we say? I was reading an online article and in it, this author says, a vast majority of stories that I hear coming out of the third world countries, especially from Muslim nations, are stories of a person being told by an angel, so angels are telling these individuals to find a Bible and read it. In some cases, they're asked to go to a given address and a person at that address will tell them how to find peace with Jesus. These are actual stories that are coming out of many Muslim nations. Or they are told to watch for a missionary who would be coming through the area and to listen to his message. He goes on to say, just like the angelic message in these verses, those angels give enough to convict, to motivate, and to direct people to the gospel, but they do not give the plan of salvation itself. That seems to be left to the humans, end quote. That means you and I are to be involved in sharing the gospel. And God will take individuals through. If you are involved in the outreach ministries of this church or anywhere, anywhere that you're involved in sharing the gospel, you may come across a story where people will tell you, you know, I was thinking just about that thing and God sent you at the right time. They assist believers in evangelism. They minister to believers. I was thinking also of the fact that when Elijah was without food for a number of days, it was angels who went and delivered food to him, a story that's mentioned in 1 Kings 19. They are deeply involved in the lives of believers. Uh, they rejoice when a believer is saved. Not only that, they're also involved in encouraging. They're involved in encouraging. Go down to Acts 27. If you're still in Acts, let me set the story for you you know, this is one of the last trials that the Apostle Paul undergoes. 
in Israel, almost at the end of Acts. In fact, the last four or five chapters really fill that story up. And in this particular context, Paul is left in the prison for two years in Caesarea, which is a port city. And because he's left at the port city in prison for two years, he ultimately ends up appealing to Caesar, the Roman emperor. And as a result, the kings who are there in Caesarea, they decide to send Paul to Caesar. So Paul is delivered to a Roman officer, a centurion by the name Julius, and then they set sail for Rome from an eastern port city where they are, Caesarea. But right from the beginning of the voyage, Paul warns them about the dangers of the voyage. The centurion ignores Paul's warning and he continues to sail. Sure enough, there's wind and storm as they're right in the middle of the Mediterranean, Mediterranean Sea. The situation gets so bad that they end up throwing all of their cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. That doesn't help, and so they begin throwing and getting rid of the tackles. As a violent wind and waves in this particular sea continues to beat upon them, the situation becomes so pathetic that they abandon all who are a part of that ship. They abandon all hope of being saved. By this time, they've gone without food for a number of days. And this is when Paul gets up and says the following in Acts chapter 27, verse 21. He says, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Notice verse 23. For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. What a tremendous encouragement it must have been to those who heard this from Paul, and even for Paul himself. Paul, you're not going to die. You are going to stand before the Roman emperor, and all who are with you are also going to be saved and delivered with you. In other words, angels are a channel through which God encourages you and me. In Acts, not Acts, but in Hebrews chapter 13, perhaps a verse that is familiar to you, it says in verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing you, knowing it. How that must encourage us to treat each other with love and respect and dignity. Uh, the angels then, for believers, they encourage. But not only that, they escort the souls of believers to heaven. Now, this is not a descriptive, uh, uh, this is not a prescriptive passage. The text that I have here doesn't mention it does that with everyone, but it does mention here, it is descriptive in the sense that in the story here of the rich man and Lazarus, remember that story? Lazarus is a poor man eating from the crumbs that fall from this rich man's table. One day Lazarus dies and so does the rich man. And in regards to Lazarus, it says in Luke 16, verse 22, Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. Fair to assume that they must play some role in escorting the souls 
of believers to heaven. Not only that, fifthly and finally, they protect believers according to God's will. They protect believers according to God's will. Can I just, before I read this, mention the fact that the fact that all of you are here today tells us that God has protected you so far in life. Praise be to his name. They protect believers according to God's will. What can we do here? We can turn to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. It's a familiar passage because our Lord quotes it when he was tempted himself. Psalm 91. Notice verse 11. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Angels, in other words, are tasked with protecting believers according to God's will. Story is told of Scottish missionary John Gibson Payton, who was a missionary in the New Hebrides Island, which is in the Pacific Islands. Just to give you some context, he and his first wife, Mary, went there in November 1858. His wife was pregnant at the time they landed on this island. Within a few months, their son was born, but the mother died in childbirth. So Mary died in childbirth, and after a few days, the child also died. So after... A few days following that, he actually leaves that island, goes to Australia and New Zealand, which are not far from there, and then he comes back in 1866, back to this island. That's when this particular story happens. He says, one night, hostile natives surrounded his mission headquarters with an intent on burning the patents out and killing them. John Payton and his second wife, Maggie, remember his first wife was Mary, In fact, let me mention something else about his first wife. When she died, within a few months of them landing, he had to guard both his son and his wife's uh, uh, grave because the natives were cannibals by nature. So he buried them, and he was standing as guard over his wife and son who had recently died. So anyway, secondly, his second wife, Maggie, uh, they are in this particular place right now, and they're surrounded by hostile natives They see these hostile natives and certainly think to themselves, this is our last night. They pray all night during that terror-filled night. The story goes on to say that God would deliver them. They prayed to the Lord, leaning on his great promises found in Psalm 91 of angelic assistance. The next morning, when the first rays of sunlight appeared, the patents saw their attackers had fled and with grateful hearts praised the Lord for his miraculous hand of deliverance. A year later, a year after this particular incident, in God's providence, the chief of the tribe was converted to Christ. And Mr. Payton, remembering what happened almost a year back, he asked the chief what had kept him and his men from burning down the house and killing them. The chief replied in surprise, who were all those men you had with you there. The missionary answered, there were no men there, just my wife and I. The chief argued that they had seen many men standing guard, hundreds of big men, he said, in shining garments with drawn swords in their hands. 
They seemed to circle the mission station so that the natives were afraid to attack. Only then did Mr. Payton, the story goes on to share, realize that God had sent his angels to protect them. And the chief, as a new believer, agreed that there was no other explanation. Reminds you of another story that took place in 2 Kings chapter 6. You think of Elisha and the great army that came to attack him. And he prays God open their eyes and they see thousands upon thousands of angels protecting them. Angels then are ones who are created by God to do a number of things. Finally, they are created to protect God's people. They aid in providing food for the believers. They aid in getting the gospel to the lost. They encourage and observe. They provide protection in 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 summary, they do that which God has tasked them with doing. What can we take as applications from this particular lesson on angels? First of all, this is a great reminder that the unseen world is real. The unseen world is real. The presence of angels reminds us of the fact that the unseen world is real. That the invisible world is as real as the visible world world. If you're here and if you do not believe in God or in his provision of salvation in his son Jesus Christ because you do not believe in that which is unseen because you tend to think of yourself as an intellectual or a bright as the internet calls you because you only believe in that which you can experience with your senses can I say this that that statement is just to make you look intellectual. Actually there are many things that you believe in that you cannot see with your eyes, your mind to begin with. We do believe we have one, but we've never seen it. We believe in abstract concepts such as trust and love. We never see them with our eyes, and yet relationships are possible because we believe that those exist, trust and love. So what you want to do is you want to stop hiding behind fake labels and contend with the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ and with God who has so clearly revealed himself in nature and in the pages of scriptures. So first of all, the presence of angels reminds us that the unseen world is real. Secondly, it reminds us to praise and thank God for the angels. As you hear about what they are, their ministry, their objectives, their characteristics, it should encourage you to praise and worship and thank God for creating angels. Thirdly, we can learn something from them. We can learn from their godly example. They're an example to us in how we should live. They continually, Isaiah chapter 6, Revelation chapter 4 reminds us, they continually worship and serve God and do his will. Remember our Lord's prayer in which he taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So who is doing God's will in heaven? It's these angels, isn't it? What a godly example for us that we too on earth would do God's will as angels do it in heaven. Not only that, fourthly, be Be confident. We can be confident in God's protection. 
we can be confident in God's protection. Now, this is not a guarantee that we will be protected from any and all dangers in this foreign, fallen world. For every patent that exists in this world that is protected, there's also many who lost their life in preaching the gospel. And so here's what we can conclude. While we're here in this world, it does mean that if protection comes to us, it is implemented by God through his angels. From the rest of the scriptures, we know that God's protection, though, extends beyond this world. We will never, if you are a follower of Christ, you will never be eternally lost. Because God protects us, we will never be abandoned. Because God will never let go of us. He will hold us fast. So we can be confident in God's protection over our life. Fifthly and finally, as we close, be encouraged to live Coram Deo. If the unseen world is real, and it is, if angels truly exist, and they do, then your life and my life must be lived Coram Deo. It's a Latin phrase. The phrase literally refers to something that takes place in the presence of. Deo meaning God, Coram meaning in the presence of, or in regards to God before the face of God. Can I ask you, are you living as if you're living in the presence of God? To live quorum Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing and whatever we are going through, wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. Uh, perhaps you have been kind Perhaps you've been patient with other individuals and you think no one has seen you. Uh, from these verses, we are reminded that God always sees you because you live in the face of God. May our thoughts, may our actions, may the words that come out of our mouth remind us that we are living in the presence of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these texts that we have looked at for this topic that you placed in front of us. Thank you for the wonderful reminder today that the unseen world is real. Father, we live like only the seen world is the real world. And many a times our goals and our motivations, our vision is limited to this world. Forgive us. Thank you for reminding us of the fact that the unseen world is as real as the seen world. Remind us also the fact of the godly example of these angels uh, who are praising and worshiping you 24-7. May that be the testimony of our life. May we be found praising and worshiping you for the rest of our life because you're a worthy God. You are our Lord and you are God. You are our God. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Truly, O oh God, you are worthy of our praise and worship. We come at the rest of the evening into your hands. We pray that you would be exalted through everything that is done. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.